Yeah, good morning. And just before I begin, let me just say, Scotland! Sorry, I mean, somebody had to, really. I mean, it just makes you feel proud to be British, doesn't it? Um, or at least Scottish, if they object to that. I just sort of get that in as well, you know, politics. Good morning. Uh, today brings us to the end of our preaching series on Philippians, and it also, for me, uh, brings me to the end of an era. You probably will see me speaking here again at some point in the future, but this is the last sermon series that I've had to put together uh, for the church as senior pastor. As most of you know, we have well-advanced plans to hand over the leadership of the church to our beloved Rachel and Jim. And we'd like to, I'd like to take this opportunity to announce the date when that it will, uh, will happen uh, on an official level. It's kind of happening on a sliding scale, as you've probably gathered. Um, but officially, uh, I finish my service of decommissioning, and Jim's and Rachel's service of commissioning will be on the 18th of February next year. It's a near palindrome, 1802-2018. So if you think of it that way, it's kind of palindromic. So I hope you can remember the date, and I hope that you'll all be there to join in the celebration. We're going to have lots of friends of Vineyard, lots of alumni uh, coming along as well, and it'll be good for you to, to meet with them. Now, I have no doubt at all that this is the right handover at the right time to the right couple. The more I've seen of Jim and Rachel since they got here last, uh, seems like ages ago, the summer. Do you remember the summer? <laughs> Yeah I, yeah, I can remember it dimly, dimly, somewhere back in the past. Since they arrived in July, I've been wondering more and more what on earth I'm still doing here. And I must say, at a personal level, the, the more I grapple with modern technology, for example, I was completely thrown by the fact that my iPad had updated the word processor and I couldn't find anything just last night. It just throws me completely. The more I grapple with modern technology, up-to-date ways of working, the new political correctnesses, and the legal strictures on every business and organization, the more convinced I am that this is truly no country for old men. <laughs> Carol, and, Carol and I are not planning to leave you as such. Oh dear, I seem to have connected to something. I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> you see, no country for old men. We're not planning to leave you, actually, um, and after a few months detox period, that's for you guys, not for us, um, <laughs> you, you can expect to see us once again making a nuisance of ourselves around the church, maybe serving some coffee, doing a bit of tech, putting the chairs out and stuff like that. So it won't really be goodbye, but it will be a changing of the guard. But conscious as I am of all that stuff going on, I am delighted that this last talk in the current series on Philippians has fallen to me. Because... The final chapter of Philippians sums up everything that I think Carol and I, I'm speaking for us both, is kind of royal we, would like to say to you as our time uh, of leadership draws to a close. The names and places and situations are different, of course, but the message of Philippians 4 hits the pastoral nail on the head for this time in our lives, time and again. So without further ado, let's read together Philippians chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm like this in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, 
Also, true companion, help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you alone. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I believe the message of this closing chapter is really very simple. Quite simply, stand firm thus. Stand firm in this way. In what way? Well, luckily, he's about to tell us. Because then there come the four ways in which he wants us to stand firm and the four blessings available to those who do. They are these. Verses 2 to 7, live right. Verses 8 and eight to 9, think right. Verses 10 to 19, give right. Verses 20 to 23, relate right. Now each instruction ends in a blessing. Do this and this will happen. If we want the peace of God to guard our hearts and minds, verse 7, then we better live right as the preceding firsts instruct. If we want the peace of God to be with us, verse 9, then we better think right as the preceding verses instruct. If we want God to supply all our needs according to his riches 
in glory. Then we better relate, uh, then we better live right, as the preceding verses instruct. And if we want the grace of Jesus Christ to be with our spirit, then we better relate right, as the preceding verses suggest. Now, to be clear about this, I'm not suggesting we can sort of get God's arm up his back and make him do certain things that he'd otherwise be unwilling to do, um, but we want. But all the same, Paul is quite clear that if we do things, then good things will follow as night follows day. So you might ask, how does this work? It's not using a mechanism like the heavenly slot machine uh, where we put our money in and we get what we want. It is more the case that certain blessings are just floating down the river of God anyway in a natural flow. And we can either sit on the bank and watch them pass us by or we can get out into the stream and grab hold of them. These verses tell us how to get out into the flow of the goodness which God is constantly pouring out, whether we avail ourselves of it or not. If we do learn to stand firm in these four things, then we are sure to reap the blessings, guarded hearts and minds, the presence of God of peace with us, all our needs met, and the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, if that sounds like an offer we can't refuse, uh, I think I'd agree. But ever since this letter was written to Paul's beloved Philippians, there are very few churches, I would suggest, that have even begun to stand firm in this river and hook on to these blessings. So let's be among the few that do. Number one, live right. Verses two to seven give general advice on how to live if we really want our hearts and minds to be guarded in Christ Jesus by the astounding, the extraordinary, incomprehensible peace that God himself enjoys and which he brings when he comes. But this advice starts in what at first appears to be rather an extraordinary place. I wish I'd had a fiver for every sermon that's ever been given referring to these two women as you odious and stinky. It was once common with the sexism that so shamefully is prevalent in the church to teach this passage in a way that belittled these two women of God as two silly, typical bickering women. Women, who needs them, eh? Now I want to suggest a completely different interpretation because in verse 3, Paul clearly elevates these two women to the very level that he himself occupies, side by side in the gospel. Now, these guys are traditionally imagined on the basis of no textual evidence whatever as some kind of queen bitches, spiritual wrecking balls who are going to ruin the church unless, by some wonderful intervention, they get the help of a man to sort it out. Sorry, makes me a little bit cross. In fact, if you read any of Paul's other teachings, you'll know what a short way he had with people who behaved like that. And also that he never named them. These two named women are spoken of with particular honour and respect. A far more likely interpretation, it seems to me, once we dispense with the foolish assumption that Paul was as sexist as we are, 
is that they were, in fact, principal leaders in the church who had disagreed publicly, otherwise it wouldn't be in the letter, on some question of theology or church governance. And once you try on that thesis for size, I think you'll see how much better it fits than queen bitch theory. Paul doesn't publicly take sides, but he does publicly ask the true companion of verse 3, presumably Epaphroditus himself, who's going to deliver the letter, to help them sort it out. As these words get read publicly before the church, everyone's going to be relieved to see that a genuine issue is being dealt with in an open and honest way and in a way that also places unity above the argument itself. Now, whether or not you're ready yet to accept my leaders, not bitches theory, the message of unity rings out clearly enough. If we're to agree in the Lord, as Paul puts it, then we're going to need a bit of that humility which Jeremy so brilliantly unpacked for us a few weeks back. At least the acknowledgement that the other point of view could be correct and that our own is certainly not worth breaking unity over. We don't have to agree with everything someone says in order to agree with them as a person. Amos 3 verse 3 famously asked the question, can two walk together unless they agree? I'd say the answer is clearly yes. I can walk down to the pub with you, even though we don't agree on the possible political future that Zimbabwe is facing at the moment. What I can't do, though, is walk with you to the waypat if you're going to the central. In the chaplaincy team and the ecumenical fraternal, we all agree well enough to pray together and to cooperate on certain things, even though we strongly disagree on some important theological and uh, ecclesiological matters. And that's not because our differences are unimportant, it's because our unity is more important. Verse 4 means simply, be cheerful. Easier said than done sometimes, isn't it? Yet Paul cheerfully instructs them to do it. And as if he anticipates their objections and ours, he deliberately says it again, with no elaboration at all. And this being the case, I uh, find it a little bit risky to elaborate myself. But perhaps it would, be, uh, to, it would be appropriate at least to suggest an opposite. Both Psalm 37 and Proverbs 24 come to the same conclusion about our attitude to the wrongdoing, and we might include the wrong thinking of others. And both of them say the same thing. They say, don't fret yourself about it. Leave those people to God. This, like verse 2, is what we might call a resolutely non-argumentative position. And this is echoed a third time in verse 5, where we're told to let our reasonableness be known to everyone who sees us. And the word in Greek carries connotations of mildness, of patience, moderation. And why do we do that? Because the Lord is right here. He is at hand. So what else matters when Jesus is as near as that? Speaking personally, I'm a massive fan of 1 Thessalonians 5.21, which says, test everything. Sometimes you'll find me taking a contrary position just to develop the arguments a little bit. But the arguments that I try to avoid are the ones that might actually risk relationship. 
as we often say in the Kingdom Vineyard, we'd rather win a friend than an argument. And for me, verse 6 concerning anxiety seems to flow on directly from what has gone before. The principle probably does apply quite generally. Don't worry. Instead, pray and be thankful. So it's important to recognize this is definitely not talking about people with anxiety disorders. This is not a cure for that. We'll deal with that in the ministry time in a minute and with drugs and things like that. But in this context, it does seem particularly good advice to Euodia and Syntyche, leaders who care about the church and care about teaching what's right. And so they should. But as John Wimber used to say, the best things in the kingdom of God are mostly caught, not taught. What these verses point to is the way of peace in the Lord. The two female leaders, yay, are to agree in the Lord. Then we are to rejoice in the Lord rather than fretting about unpalatable facts. They and we are to build a reputation for peaceable reasonableness because the Lord is nearby. They and we are not to be anxious but be prayerful and thankful towards the Lord. If we do these things, you can see how it's all about Jesus, can't you? If we do these things, we've already waded out into the river where the blessings are floating down and we can easily hook onto them. And the blessing in this case is an extraordinary peace which will guard our hearts and mind, again, in the Lord. So that's number one, live right. Number two is think right. Verse eight, like chapter three, verse one, begins with another, finally. How many finallys can you get into one letter? One might ask. The word might equally easily be translated furthermore. Just catching Zach's eye there, I thought, I'd just pinch his accent to say, furthermore. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good word, certain accent, isn't it? <laughs> furthermore, or in addition, or from this time forward. I'll leave you to decide which interpretation of the word is best. But however final that finally really is, verses 8 and 9 acknowledge, as we must, that we're going to have to change the way we think if we're ever going to walk in this way of peace. We shall have to discipline our thinking in a particular direction because we're constantly being bombarded with the opposite. If we're going to get on with people who don't think exactly the same as we do, the thing we need to be concentrating on is not what's not true, but what is true. Because the war cry of the argumentative person is, rubbish, that's not true. But the man or woman of peace will more often find him or herself saying, that is so true, you know, you are more right than you could ever know. Very often picking out the one statement we can agree with in a massive verbiage to give a basis for further constructive discussion. I don't know of anyone who has ever argued into the kingdom of God but I've met quite a few who've argued themselves in once they were given the basis for a proper discussion. So we have to learn to think about what is true, not what's not, what is honourable, not what's dishonourable, what is just, not what is unjust, what is lovely, not what we hate, what's commendable, not what we find despicable. And if possible which Paul seems to doubt even in his day, as we might in our own, we need to look towards what is outstandingly brilliant, not what's appallingly bad. 
what we can easily praise, not what we'd judge harshly. And it's often said that the, um, the counterfeiting team, the FBI, don't spend time looking at forgeries. They spend time looking at and smelling and handling the real stuff. So they're so familiar with it that they instantly see what's wrong. So you concentrate on what's true, not on what's not. In verse 9, Paul once again happily holds himself out as an example of someone who managed to think in that way. And we might find this a little surprising because it doesn't fit with our image. Um, you don't have to read much of his writing to realize what a massive intellect he was and how learned he was. And we're used to highly educated but emotionally stunted, argumentative people who would have us believe that intellect and understanding are in some way opposed to dwelling on the positive. Paul, is widely recognized, was the foremost intellect of his day. And he says, no. If we can learn to think in this peaceful, this non-argumentative way, then we are already out in the river of God, and we can easily hook onto the blessing that's floating down to meet us. And that is, in this case, the presence with us of the very God of peace himself. The one who commands peace, and it is. The one who commanded the storm to be still, and it was. He will be setting our very atmosphere as we think in this way. But just notice too, before we move on from verse 9, its implication in relation to learning and doing. Because it's quite possible to learn and receive and hear and see stuff and never do it at all as Jesus teaches in the well-known parable of the house on the rock and the house on the sand. If we don't move from hearing to doing, then it all falls flat. Live right, think right. Thirdly, give right. Verses 10 to 19. Following what we last just saw about hearing and doing, Paul describes a very similar process in verse 10. When the Philippians actually got round to giving support to Paul, they revived their concern for him. They felt concerned, all right, before that, but until they actually put their hand in their pocket and did something about it, all those generous feelings, their concern for him, was, Paul says, dead. It's like James famously says in his letter, faith without good deeds is dead in itself. So it's once they actually gave that their concern really came to life. It was revived. And many of us here love the church and want it to succeed. But we forget all too easily that we have to put our hand in our pocket to make that happen. Our undoubted fields of love and concern for the church will only actually revive when we commit to supporting it financially. Our heartfelt thanks, I hope on behalf of everyone here, to those who do. Like Paul in verses 11 and 17, I'm not really speaking about the church needing your money so much as about the blessing that gets poured out when God's people take giving seriously. Over the years, we, like Paul, have learned to do, um, to do what we'd want to do with plenty of money. We give more of it away. We spend more on ministry, for example, opening the Vineyard Center. But we've also learned how to live through the lean times, cutting back our expenses to the bone making sure the payroll is really under tight control. 
and leaning into the Lord in faith to meet our needs. As a church, we have for many years got by on roughly half or less what other vineyard churches our size uh, get in. And we've done that in a very expensive part of Scotland. And you don't have to look far to see how much the Lord has blessed us. But it has also cost us, and it's cost the work. Giving right as a church, not relying so heavily on the tithes of the few, would free us to do so much more. And that's, that's just merely in financial terms. But it's much more than that, as Paul wants them to see in verses 17 and 18. I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. The giving of some of us, and I'm here to tell you that it was a student who recently gave the biggest gift we'll get this year, is a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Can your giving be described in those terms? Can mine? Or do you perhaps spend more on coffee or beer or whatever than you do on your church week by week? In the past, we've often spoken of fat church and thin church. Thin church being those who are here through all the year, fat church being um, kind of student comers, comers and goers, which is most of us, which is two-thirds of us. Now, thanks to uh, Jim's and Rachel's genius, we're going to speak in more uh, positive terms rather than fat and thin. We're going to talk about core church and more church. <laughs> I really like that. Well done, guys. Every study that we've done on the subject of giving over the years indicate that it is core church that subsidizes more church to an enormous extent. So once again, as I've done often in the past, I want to issue the coffee challenge to those of you who are in more church. Just quickly tot up in your head what kind of sum you spend on coffee or beer or whatever it is in a week. And determine that from this day forward, you'll spend as much on your church as you do on what you pour down your neck, as they say down south. And once you get used to doing that, you can build up as many in the past have until you're giving a tenth of your spending money to the church. On Friday, I turned up at pub church without my wallet. And it doesn't often happen. And I felt absolutely terrible. There's one good chap after another uh, bought me drinks and food and all good things, and I couldn't buy them anything back. It just felt wrong. I want to ask, how many of us feel bad about coming to church with no wallet? Is it actually okay to expect everyone else to pay for us to be here? I ask myself, as I beg you to ask yourselves, can my attitude to giving be described as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice pleasing to the Lord? Now, there's usually a, an uneasy shifting in the seat when the minister talks about money. But I'm here to tell you it's far more embarrassing for the minister speaking than it is for you guys listening. The mammon spirit of our age gets upset when we cross him. Hackles rise. Some, even listening to this podcast, would be saying, there you go, always thought this was an abusive church. But let me tell you what's genuinely abusive and what we'd be up in arms about in any other setting. Most of those ministers, as they speak about money, if they actually totted up the hours they worked, are being paid far below minimum wage. 
And all the time, if we did but see it, here too is another incredible blessing of God just floating down the river right in front of our eyes. As a church, we could simply wade out and take it just by giving more generously to God's work. We find it described in verse 19. And here it's offered in the form of a definite promise to the Philippians, since they're already giving generously. They're giving right. They don't need to be told. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I believe that our needs are actually much more than just the financial ones, which I've been talking about, the ones that spring immediately to mind. Some of our spiritual needs for healing, prophecy, miracles, wisdom, will also be supplied according to God's riches in glory in Christ Jesus. What about our personal needs for security, friendship, love, acceptance, understanding, forgiveness? Reconciliation, courage, company. Are they not needs as well? Studying the phrase every need, I looked up the word translated all, and I found it really does mean all and every. But not just that, it means, it means all, any, every, entirely, all manner of means, always, everyone, as many as, thoroughly, whatsoever, the whole. Would you like to see all our, our needs met, spiritual and physical and emotional, like that. I know I would. So we know what to do. Live right, think right, give right. And lastly, relate right. This follows perfectly on from giving right because giving is, after all, just uh, a way that we care for the body of Christ of which each one of us is a member. Verse 20 starts with a doxology, a praise God. But these verses contain more than a merely formal signing off, although we do have to scratch the surface a little in order to get to it. Once again, it's a message of unity, a pointer to the way of peace. And once again, I find it in that little word, every. Saint just means a sanctified person, a, a, a Christian, a believer. But what does every mean? Well, I thought it was important to know which saints are included in this and which aren't, so I looked it up just to be sure. And I found that most inconveniently, every saint means all, any, every, entirely, all manner of means, always, everyone, as many as, thoroughly, whatsoever, the whole. What, every saint? Even the one who's 40 years older or younger than I am? Even the one who's not the same gender, class, nationality, or color as me. Even the one who doesn't like my church. Even the one who doesn't like me. Even the one who's mortally offended me. Even the one who wears that ghastly hat, darling. Well, I guess so. That's what every means. And Paul really rubs the point in, in verse 22. All the saints greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The very mention of Caesar's household would grab the attention of some for one reason, others for another. For the cultural Jew, Caesar was unclean, an idol, a hate figure, one who took God's glory for himself. But for the upwardly mobile cultural pagan in the church, his household remained aspirational. It's almost as if Paul is playing with them a little as if he knows that the mere thought of Caesar's household will bring out the instinctive tribalisms within the Philippian church. 
Yet all the believers in that household greeted all the Philippians unconditionally. Presumably, slave and free from many nations, greeting them all alike. Well, to be quite honest, I can't draw quite the same causal link here between doing right and the attendant blessing, because in this case, unlike the other three, there's no linking and between the two thoughts. Yet Philippians is a friendship letter, as we've discussed before. And Paul expects, as he's quite entitled to do, that this instruction will be followed. So he simply blesses them anyway, with the grace they may need to greet the lovely and the unlovely alike. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The curse, in particular, of our social media age is precisely how antisocial social media really is. In an increasingly tribal world, we retreat ever deeper into thought silos where no one will ever challenge us by thinking or being different, and woe betide them when they are. But as this wonderful chapter shows, God calls his church to be radically different, to live right, think right, give right, and finally to relate right. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits and mine. Amen. When you stand, I'll pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We praise you and worship you for who you are. One who walked the way of peace, even knowing that it led to a cross. Please take these, these few simple thoughts about your holy word and sow in our hearts the seeds that you really want to. And as we were singing before, sow and water, sow and water. And Lord, we dedicate ourselves to sowing and watering with you. I believe there are some here who have heard a call from God this morning. Some who've become aware of an unease or a disease in their bodies or minds. Some who have a stirring in their heart that they cannot put their finger on what it's about. And if that's you, or if you want anything, if you just want healing in your body or mind, then uh, I'd invite you to come forward as the music starts and we'll find some lovely home group people to pray with you. And this is not about expertise, although some of them are pretty expert. This is just about the presence of God. It's about the touch of the Holy Spirit who is here to minister, to heal, to encourage, to build up, to comfort. I think comfort's a big word for many here today. I invite you to come and receive from the comforter himself. Amen.